little slow this morning. On Monday, I, I went airborne on the ice in my uh, driveway, and I kind of landed full weight on my, my uh, ankle. So I won't make any sudden moves. Brian's going to come back and help me with communion stairs, a little bit of a problem. But I'm fine just standing here, which is, uh, which is what I'll mainly be doing. So this year for Advent, we're going to take four statements, four of the statements that Jesus made about why he came. So we're going to hear Jesus in his own words why he became one of us. Today we'll look at, I came to seek and save that which was lost. Next week, I came to bring a sword. Why would he say that? Well, come back next week. Uh, The following week, I came to do the Father's will. And then finally, I came that they might have life. You should have got a reading guide in your bulletin when you came in. If you didn't pick one up, you can get one on your way out. But we provided five uh, scripture passages after each of the messages, so they, they allow you to, to look at specific aspects of Jesus' statements uh, after the sermon that you, you've heard. So we hope that helps you and, and helps you draw closer to God this Advent season. And so why are we studying this? Why is it important to understand Jesus in his own words, why he came? Well, a couple of reasons. First, we will better understand what Jesus wants to do in our lives today. Okay, and so Jesus is still doing today the very same things that he did in the first century. The more clearly we understand that, the more, the more we'll receive that and, and, and participate with what he's doing. And secondly, the better we'll understand what discipleship looks like. And so a disciple is a follower of Christ. A disciple is someone who's apprenticed to Jesus and is learning from him how to live his or her life the way Jesus did. And so since Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost, if we're following him, then that has implications for what he wants to do in us and through us as we are disciples. So today we begin by considering Luke 19 verses 1, and 1 through 10. And this is the account of Jesus seeking and saving Zacchaeus. Jesus said, I came to seek and save that which was lost. And so the previous chapter really sets the context. And so let me, let me just spend a little bit of time on that. In Luke 18, we have the encounter uh, of Jesus with the rich young ruler. Now, he's the man who came to Jesus and asked him, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus gave him this, this answer. He said, this one thing you lack, sell all your possessions, give the proceeds to the poor, then you will have riches in heaven and then follow me. Jesus did not demand this of everyone, but for this man, because he worshiped money, he had to to divest himself of everything to follow Jesus. And Luke's comment was, is that when he had heard these things, he, the man, became very sad for he was extremely rich. He wasn't merely rich, he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it, they thought out loud and they said, then who can be saved? This man can't be saved. It's easier for a rich man to go through the, or a camel to go through the eye of a needle for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Who can be saved? And Jesus said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. In other words, by God's grace, even someone as wealthy as this man could enter the kingdom of heaven. We come into chapter 19, and Luke gives us an example of a rich man, Zacchaeus, who enters the kingdom of heaven. 
Look at Luke 19, verses 1 and 2. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. There's a verbal connection with the previous chapter. And so tax collectors, as you probably know, they were despised by their fellow Jews. They were Jewish people who were employed by the Roman Empire. And so they collected taxes on behalf of the Romans, and then they took a cut for themselves. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He was kind of a regional manager. He was like an area manager for tax collectors. So he would have been especially despised by his fellow Jews. Yet he was spiritually curious. He had spiritual interest, verses 3 and 4. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. He'd heard about Jesus, and he wanted a visual. He wanted to see Jesus and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he, Jesus, was about to pass through that way. And so Zacchaeus knew the route, and so he didn't care about appearances at this time. He ran on ahead. When was the last time you ran in public when you weren't jogging? When was the last time you just, I've just got to get there? So he left appearances aside. He climbed up into a tree. He wanted to see Jesus. Well, it turns out Jesus also wanted to see him. Verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. This is an example of what uh, scholars, theologians call a a divine necessity. Jesus said, I must stay at your house. He had a divine appointment with Zacchaeus in his house. And this thrilled Zacchaeus because he was not pursued, he was not wanted by desirable people somebody famous and as popular at the time as Jesus. Verse 6, and he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble saying, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And that was the common reaction of the Jewish authorities, the religious people in Jesus' day. It was just the common, you just knew it was going to happen. Uh, Their mindset was, if you're holy, you're going to keep your distance from sinful people. And the tax gatherers were definitely in that category of sinners. Jesus, on the other other hand, had a very different perspective. Jesus befriended people who had everything wrong with them. Why? Because he viewed himself as a physician who came to heal sick people. He was the redeemer who came to seek and save that which was lost. And so that's why he pursued Zacchaeus. And verse 8 records how Zacchaeus responded to Jesus. And our best understanding is that the, 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 the decent amount of time had lapsed between verses 7 and 8. And this account is compressed. And so Jesus has been in Zacchaeus' house. They've had conversation. I wish we knew what happened there, what Jesus had said, what all had transpired. But sometime, somehow between verses 7 and 8, Zacchaeus came to faith. He, he was a believer. And verse 8 describes how Zacchaeus repented. His, this is expression of repentance. Look at verse 8. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. 
Okay, what's your net worth? What, what, what are you worth? Divide it by two. Can you imagine giving half of that away? Okay, it's gone. So Zacchaeus gave half of, of everything. He said, I will give half of everything to the poor. And if I, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And so Zacchaeus is describing what repentance looks like. Since his sin involved defrauding people financially, repentance involved, uh, involved making financial uh, reparations. And so he would make things right. He does far more than the Old Testament law uh, required. But this voluntary repentance, I mean, this was just a natural expression of his heart. It involved this heartfelt generosity. And that is one of the marks of a person truly believing and repenting and believing. Two sides of the same coin. Heartfelt generosity. When people come to faith in Christ because Jesus, who was rich, became poor for us, we just naturally, instinctively say, if God is that generous to me, I have to be generous to other people. And notice Jesus' comment after, Jesus, after Zacchaeus announced what, what his repentance would involve. He said, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. And so this new generosity was tangible evidence that Zacchaeus had experienced salvation. He spent his entire career defrauding people. And so when he turned and he's now said, I'm going to be generous to people, that was tangible evidence that salvation had come to his house. And of course, all Jews were, were descendants of Abraham ethnically and, and uh, um, by birth. But Zacchaeus was also a son of Abraham by faith in Galatians 3, 7. Uh, Paul wrote that we are truly descendants of Abraham if we have the faith of Abraham. And whereas the rich young ruler in the previous chapter, he went away sad. Zacchaeus, he, he was exuberant and joyful about being a generous person. In verse 10, Jesus frames up his encounter with Zacchaeus with this statement. And we'll spend the rest of our time thinking about this. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. And the Son of Man is kind of a shorthand for the Messiah. And the, the reference there is to Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel saw this vision of one like a Son of Man coming on the clouds. And in the, in the Bible, if you're coming on the clouds, you're God, okay? You're divine. And he looked like a man, and he was given authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. This is one of Jesus' favorite ways of, of describing himself. I'm the son of man. I'm that guy. I, I am the one who has all authority. I am the Messiah. And so what he says here is that the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, Okay, let's think about what it means to be lost. We talked about this a couple months ago when we were looking at the drama of Scripture. After the fall, we're all lost. Probably the most profound thing, the most helpful thing I've read about being lost is from Dallas Willard in his book, Renovation of the Heart. And he says a lot of things. One of the things he says is this. He says, to be lost means to be out of place. Something that is lost is something that is not where it's supposed to be, and therefore it is not integrated into the life of the one to whom it belongs and to whom it is lost. Okay? So if something is lost, it's out of place. It's no longer useful. So if you lose your car keys, they still open your trunk, they still start your car, 
but they're of no use to you. In the same way, if a person is spiritually lost, it means that that person is out of place in relation to God, and he or she is not usable by God, is not able to fulfill the functions, the, the desires and design that God has for that person. And so Zacchaeus was lost because he wasn't in the right place with God or with people. And so he didn't love God, he loved money. He did not love people, he defrauded people. So in, in a profound sense, Zacchaeus was lost. Everybody could find his, you know, his, his address, but in relation to God, he was absolutely out of place. And so Jesus was seeking that which was lost when he noticed Zacchaeus and he had to go to his house, he befriended him. The other primary place in Luke where Jesus talked about seeking what has been lost is in chapter 15. And the context is very similar. In Luke 15, 1 and 2, we read this. Now, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Sounds familiar, right? And so in response to their grumbling, Jesus tells three parables. He tells the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son, which we often call the parable of the prodigal son. And in each parable, the emphasis is on the value of what has been lost. So the parable of the sheep, for example, the sheep was so valuable that the, the shepherd left the 99 behind and went and pursued that one. And so if something is lost, it's out of place. Let's consider just a couple more points about what it means to be lost. And Willard makes these points. And then we'll consider the implications of Jesus' statement. And so if something is lost, uh, or Willard points out that it is very possible to be lost and not know it. Okay? You can be lost and not realize it. For example, he says, many a driver is lost before he knows it though rarely before his wife knows it, right? <laughs> and so what is it with guys and directions, okay? What is it with guys and, and uh, not asking for directions? In a similar way, it is possible to be spiritually lost and have no idea that that's the case, not, not realize that you are out of place. There's a lot of things that can mask lostness. And in the New Testament, the premier example of those who were lost were the Pharisees, okay? Because they had more Bible knowledge. They knew the, the Hebrew scriptures better than anybody else. And because they had authority, they would have told you, no, I'm, I am tight with God. God and I, when I speak, I am saying what God wants. I have the, the mind of God. And yet they were profoundly lost. In Matthew 23, Jesus said, not only do you Pharisees not enter the kingdom of heaven, you actually are sons of hell. He says, you are of your father, the devil. And so they were, they were profoundly lost. And yet they had no idea. They thought they were fine. And in our day, many, many things can mask lostness. And so some of the, the things we've been talking about, wealth can mask lostness, uh, competence, uh, success in career or any number of things. Uh, Bible knowledge can mask loss, lostness. Some of the people that are the most lost just know the Bible and they can pound you with it and they can weaponize it and they can, can do all sorts of things with the Bible. Uh, popularity, if you're just widely accepted by vast numbers of people, 
You say, I'm not lost, I'm, I'm good. But uh, you can be very insightful and yet be lost, important point. And second thing just to, to mention is that if something is lost, it does not mean it's not valuable. Lost does not equal worthless. And so if you didn't lose your car keys and you get home and you realize I don't have my phone, uh, you're not going to conclude, uh, I don't need that. It's worthless because it's lost, right? No, you're going to go into a frenzy to find your phone. Lost does not e equal worthless. Same thing is true for human beings. Being made in the image of God, every single person on the planet in every country is valuable. If humans were not valuable, Jesus would not have paid such a high price to seek and save that which was lost. And so let's think about, in light of all that, let's think about the implications of Jesus' statement, I came to seek and save that which was lost. We'll ask two questions. First of all, what are the implications for what Jesus wants to do in our lives? Given that he came to seek and save that which is lost, what does he want to do in our lives here today? Well, the short answer is he wants to seek and save us. He wants us to be found. Jesus still pursues people who are wandering around helpless and clueless and lost because they're out of place in the most foundational relationship in their life, their relationship with their creator. Jesus pursues such people. He chases them down. He spends time with them. He convinces them that they do not have to be lost. And when I think about this, I often think back to when, when I came to Christ, I was a sophomore in college. And if you had asked me when I was a freshman in college or my first semester when I was sophomore year, if they said, Steve, are you lost? I would have been offended by that. I would have told you, I said, I'm not lost. I've gone to church my entire life. I read the Bible a couple times a year. I am better than most people I know. Honestly, I am a great guy. And yet I would, was, the reality was that I was profoundly lost. I just realized this fall that before I, I, I had Christian friendships, I did not have a single healthy, flourishing relationship in my entire life, in, in my life at that time. I'm talking about family, talking about friends, anybody. And so I was lost and I didn't know it. And yet I didn't have the words for it, but I was just like Zacchaeus when I was a sophomore in college. I began hanging around these three Christian guys and I had never seen anything like this. It's like they were on a first name basis with Jesus, okay? I heard people tell jokes about Jesus. I heard people on the basketball court use the name of Jesus. I, I had, had heard Bible stories, but I never heard anybody who was on a first-name basis with Jesus, and they raved about him. And so I was like, Zacchaeus, I was like, I want to keep my distance here, but I really need to, to hear what this is all about. And Jesus noticed me every bit as much as he noticed Zacchaeus in the tree. And he befriended me, and he spoke to me. You know how he did it? He did it through those three guys. He did it through Bob Bowen and Joel Piper and Stuart Jordan. And after a, a few months of this is like the most obvious thing for me to do in my life was to trust 
in Christ, just wholeheartedly. I would, I'd say, I would be foolish not to trust in Christ. And so you may be like Zacchaeus here this morning. You may have come to church. People come to church for many, many reasons. There are almost no bad reasons to come to church. But you may come, and you may be like Zacchaeus, and you want to keep your distance, and you're not too sure. I've heard people talk about Jesus. It seems too good to be true. You need to understand that Jesus still notices people. Jesus notices you. He wants to befriend you. He wants to speak to you. And if you listen, if you're attentive through the word, through what your your Christian friends say, you will hear him say, I came to seek and save you. You don't have to be lost. You don't have to be out of place. And so if you allow him to, he will say this to you. He will draw you into a relationship with himself. And like Zacchaeus, nobody could predict it what Zacchaeus would do, what he would be like after he met Jesus. And I can't predict what your life will be like, but I can guarantee, even if it's hard, it's going to be harder in some ways, but it's going to be vastly superior to any other option. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. I also mentioned that if you're already found, if you are already a follower of Christ, there may be, may be pockets in your life, areas in your life that are lost. They're not what they should be. They're not where they should be. Please know that Jesus does not say, okay, good, you're saved, and then abandon us to our lostness. He still pursues us. He still wants every area of our life to experience the salvation that he secured for us. And so it might be in relationally, Uh, you're lost. It might be some habitual sin. It might be some debilitating anxiety or fear. Jesus wants to seek out and save those areas of our lives. He wants us to, to experience wholeness in every area of our lives. Well, the other question I want to ask is, what are the implications for our discipleship? And this is where we need a rich and robust understanding of the body of Christ. Okay, so the body of Christ, that's not just slang for church people, okay, or body of Christ. So for 33 years, the body of Christ was the flesh and blood body of Jesus. The body of Christ is the personal presence of Christ on earth. Jesus died, he raised from the dead, he ascended, he was enthroned at the right hand of God, and now those who are his followers are the body of Christ. Corporately, we are the body of Christ. We are the person, we are the bodily presence of Jesus in this world. And so in a very tangible way, we're supposed to think the thoughts of Christ We have the mind of Christ. We're supposed to speak things that Jesus would say. We are supposed to do the things that Jesus would do. And so corporately, we are the body of Christ. Well, when Jesus walked this earth in his flesh and blood body, he went around seeking and saving that which is lost. Therefore, we as the body of Christ are supposed to go around seeking out those who are lost those who are out of place, so that they may be found. Just as Jesus noticed people like Zacchaeus, you and I are supposed to notice people who are lost. 
Of course, not to judge them. What's the point in that? We are to notice them because Jesus is noticing them. He wants them to experience salvation. Just as Jesus befriended people who were lost, we are supposed to befriend people who are lost. And that's different than just being friendly, right? We're talking about actually develop honest friendships with people who are out of place. And just like Jesus, we're supposed to be full of grace and truth in our relationship with people who are lost. And I realize this is a a huge topic, and I don't know where your mind goes when we say you are supposed to be part of this body that seeks and saves those who are lost. And we could talk about a lot of different aspects of that. But I want us to think specifically about whether or not we buy this core premise that is the body of Christ we are supposed to be part of this mission of seeking and saving those who are lost. Do you buy that? Do you own it? Do you believe that Jesus wants to seek out and save people partly through you? I'm not asking, do you have a plan? Can you figure out how it's going? I'm not asking that. That's a decent question. But I'm I'm asking, do you buy the basic premise? Because if you don't buy the premise, you're not going to participate. You're not going to walk by faith and enter into situations with a sense of anticipation. This past week, I was in a couple of situations where I was anticipating. I was, I was going to be in some situations where I knew there were people who were, who were, were lost. And that's not an insult. Again, it's just a category. It's, it's, it's a reality about people. And I found myself wondering, having studied this passage, preparing this message, I found myself wondering, I wonder if Jesus wants to seek and to save these people that I'm about to spend time with, okay? And I thought about it for about three seconds, and it was like Jesus is screaming, of course I want to seek and save these people. That's why I came. I am the Son of Man who came to seek and save that which is lost. And I can tell you, it didn't puff me up with pride. It's like, okay, here we go. And I entered into these situations with a sense of anticipation. I'm wondering if you would, would, are open to that possibility. Do you buy this? Are you willing to walk by faith and let God use you as the body of Christ? Today, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. Will you allow the bread and the cup to remind you that Jesus' body was broken, his blood was shed so that he might seek and save that which was lost? And as we have a time for for, uh, uh, contemplation, meditation, think about what ways Jesus is seeking and pursuing you this morning. Think about the ways that he is pursuing others through you in your everyday life. Would those who are going to serve come forward at this time? And uh, as they come, I'll just mention that here at Faith, we, we practice open communion, which means that if you're a follower of Christ, we would love for you to join us uh, at the Lord's table. And so we'll pass the bread first. If you need non-allergen communion bread, you'll find it in the center of the tray. I ask you to hold the bread until everybody's received, and then we'll eat together, and then we'll pass, pass the cup.